in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, including the murder of children and infants. It also contains discussion of sexual violence. Investigative genetic genealogy has been a game changer for countless cold cases. Genetic genealogy refers to the practice of combining DNA and genetic testing with traditional genealogical research methods in order to identify relationships between individuals. Investigative genetic genealogy puts this practice to use in order to solve crimes. This technique can be used to catch murderers and rapists, as well as to identify John and Jane Doe's, the popularly used term for unclaimed and unknown dead bodies. Here's a summary from a 2021 Library of Congress research guide titled Genetic Genealogy, DNA and Family History. This branch of genetics became popular in recent years as costs were drastically reduced and genealogical studies using molecular techniques became accessible to the general public. Advantages of including DNA, as opposed to traditional genealogical research alone, include the ability for researchers to extend their ancestry beyond the paperwork of recent centuries, 
and to construct ancient pedigrees through molecular evolutionary studies. Genealogists also use DNA to solve mysteries in their immediate families, such as to discover biological parents of adoptees, or to determine the accurate male ancestor in a non-paternity event. But there's also a very relevant real-world application when it comes to crimes. Google the term cases solved by genetic genealogy, and you'll see a whole host of both high-profile and lesser-known cases that have been successfully brought to a conclusion by this technique. It's brought answers to plenty of grieving families, and has even led to arrests and convictions. One of the biggest names in the world of investigative genetic genealogy is the DNA Doe Project. This is a nonprofit organization dedicated to identifying does. They've had some extraordinary success stories, including the 2018 identification of murder victim Marsha King, previously known as the Buckskin Girl, the 2019 identifications of murder victims Louise Flesher, also known as the Bell in the Well, and Deborah Jackson, also known as Orange Socks, and the 2021 identifications of murder victims James Freund and Pamela Buckley, also known as the Sumter County Does. The DNA Doe Project specifically focuses on doe identification. But a trio of volunteers there wanted to branch out into identifying perpetrators of sexual assaults and homicides, as well as infant remains and homicide cases where a crime resulted in the child's death. The result was coast-to-coast genetic genealogy services. The three founding partners started out as volunteers of the DNA Doe Project, Karen Binder, Tracy Boyle, and Harmony Volmer. They are based in Westchester County, New York, and first started taking cases in May 2022. We first read about this women-led startup in Westchester Magazine, and we wanted to know more. We were fortunate enough to get the chance to speak to Karen and Tracy. This is an interview that we conducted several months ago, back in 2022. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet. And this is The Promise of Investigative Genetic Genealogy, a conversation with Coast to Coast founders Karen Binder and Tracy Boyle.
tell us a bit about your like professional backgrounds and sort of what, you know, take us through uh, the DNA Doe Project and founding Coast to Coast. So my name is Karen Binder. I have been in the field of investigative genetic genealogy since its inception, really. Um, early 2018, I joined DNA Doe Project and have worked there on unidentified remains cases for almost five years now. At the time, I was working in healthcare by day, but that has just this week changed. So I have a different job now. The three of us, uh, Harmony, Tracy, and I really wanted to be able to work on um, child remains cases, which at the time was not something done by DNA Doe Project. And we also really wanted to work on suspect cases, also not done by DNA Doe Project. So we founded our own LLC so that we could work on on these types of cases and uh, contribute more to the world of investigative genetic genealogy. And I'll also say for Harmony, Harmony Vollmer um, is our third member of our LLC. And she also is a healthcare worker by day, genetic genealogist by night. So we've all kind of juggled all of these things for years now. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tracy Boyle. By day, I'm an office administrator. And by night, I'm an investigative genetic genealogist. Uh, Karen actually was the one that recruited me for DDP. I had sent in my application and she quote unquote hired me. <laughs> so um, that was around October 2018. And I've been working with DNA Do Project ever since. And then, like Karen mentioned, we kind of wanted to branch out to do things that the DNA Do Project wasn't doing. So we decided to form our own LLC. Best decision I made in hiring ever. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously we know what DNA Doe Project is and what they do uh, famous throughout the true crime world. And in terms of the work that they've, they've put into the, this sort of like field that has advanced so quickly over time. I feel like every, every year you're hearing about new cases that are being cracked or new does who are giving their identities back. But I'm, I'm curious, can you just talk a bit about maybe some of the highlights of, of what you both sort of did there and, and some of the kind of cases that you helped to look at, um, things like that. Sure. So I'll also mention we, we both still work at DNA Doe Project now. Um, I'm still the director of education and development at DNA Doe Project and also still work on cases and team leadership um, for cases. Although, of course, our time is more split now. But we're both, uh, we're all really passionate about giving Doe's their names back. John and Jane Doe's are missing people who are missing from their families, often you don't find them in NamUs or those other central databases that have missing people listed, but they they belong there. That's what that's the answer that we're trying to give to their families because if a person was reported missing 20 years ago, the chance that they were, I mean, NamUs didn't exist back then. So there's a chance that they were reported missing. The paperwork was lost. The agency doesn't exist anymore. The family members don't exist anymore. So we're providing answers to the loved ones of John and Jane Doe's who are searching for them. That's what I would say we bring to the table at DDP. And uh, like Karen, I'm also a team leader with the DNA Doe Project. And it's the same thing. Um, you know, We just want to make sure that these people get their names back and that their families find out what happened to their loved ones. And I think one of the crazy things is how many times you hear that like a report was lost or people didn't know where to file the missing persons report because their loved one was traveling. They thought that they were out living their best life, like a free spirit. And then they find out that, you know, they're deceased. So there's always, I think the stories get me the most when you're researching these people's lives, because you learn so much about the people and their families and like 
you kind of feel like you're part of their family sometimes. And it's, it's the best feeling when you land on that person that you think is the dough and you know that you're finally going to bring them home. And that's kind of what, why we do what we do. Absolutely. And I, I think, I know in terms of, I mean, we've, we were recently working on a case where we asked for some very old records and we we're told they were incinerated. So it's like, there's this really sad feeling that like, what does that mean for some people who may have been lost and, and those records, you know, were the thing tying them to somebody. So we definitely understand that. I, I, I'm in terms of coast to coast. So you mentioned uh, kind of foraying into some, you know, areas where DNA Doe Project doesn't really touch. And, and maybe could you talk a bit about the focus for coast to coast, um, kind of where you bring that expertise and why those kinds of cases might be a little bit different than more of a, a traditional, you know, doe identification? Sure. So um, DNA Doe Project, being a nonprofit organization, the mission is really laser focused. So John and Jane Doe's. So oftentimes people come to DNA Doe Project asking for help with other types of casework that DNA Doe Project isn't able to complete because it's just not within their mission. So by opening up Coast to Coast Genetic Genealogy Services, Tracy and Harmony and I were hoping to increase the amount of investigative genetic genealogy practitioners working in the field to do those types of cases. For example, suspects in violent crimes, people that have committed homicide or sexual assaults. Those are still really important cases that need to be solved, but they're outside of the mission of DNA Doe Project. So we're here to take those on and answer that call. Ways that it's different from the work that we were doing at DDP, for one thing, I, I would say that one difference is that the partnership with law enforcement, as important as it is in an unidentified remains case, it's even more important in these cases. So that's one of the things that we try to put at the forefront of what we're doing is very regular communication with our law enforcement partners. It's paramount to what we do. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. 
Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I think also another important aspect of Coast to Coast or what people might not realize about working criminal cases versus working doe cases is that the identification is so much heavier. Like with a doe case, we never want to mess up. (laughs) But with a doe case, you can you know, find somebody, find out isn't the person you think it is. Maybe it was like an uncle, you go back to the drawing board or you find out it was a brother and you have to go back to the drawing board and you can kind of work around that. When you're working a suspect case, you don't want to be wrong because that person is going to have their life turned upside down and you don't want to have innocent people targeted for something they didn't do. So that's why we make sure that when we do these cases, we're very thorough and that's why it's important to have people who actually like who are experienced in this type of work because those that aren't might not understand what they're looking at. They might have done a ton of adoption cases through ancestry or family tree DNA, but when it gets to just gen match and family tree DNA, it's a completely different world sometimes. And especially when the suspect cases you have a much much smaller pool to work with, so it makes it that much more difficult. And the other aspect of that that Tracy just brought up, which is really important, is that being really experienced, we also know a lot of the guidelines that are in place for this work. So the Department of Justice put out interim guidance for investigative genetic genealogy practitioners that really needs to be followed to make sure that we're abiding by the rules that the government has set for this type of work. And sometimes even law enforcement partners are not familiar with those rules because they're not usually operating in this area. So sometimes it's on us to educate law enforcement. An example of those rules, an arrest is never made based on our identification. We provide an investigative lead, and then it's on the law enforcement partner to collect a DNA sample to confirm the lead that we've provided. But you can imagine what could happen if an investigative genetic genealogist was wrong about their suspect, and that person was arrested based on the wrong type of tests. I mean, it's very, it's a very scary thought. So Tracy brought up a really important point of having experience and the knowledge necessary to do these interactions and be able to perform this type of work. And I feel like it's, you know, because it's sort of considered not a new science, DNA technology has been around for a while now, but I guess nobody wants to be the one to make a mistake in a high profile case and then have defense attorneys be kind of pointing to that forever for, you know, throwing doubt on the science, essentially with a jury, I would imagine. I want to I want to go into the trainings and sort of the partnerships with law enforcement. But before that, I wanted to ask you both a bit about, you know, the, the sort of infant um, identification and, and sort of um, infant remains and, and where that kind of becomes sort of a, you know, complicated subject, you know, in, in sort of a post uh, Roe v. Wade environment. And sort of what sort of things are you looking for to sort of, you know, be taking on those cases, I guess? Well, we have um, an infant remains policy on our website, which we're very, we made that transparent before Roe v. Wade because we wanted it to be very clear 
that we are not here to participate in the persecution of people who have exercised their reproductive rights. So no stillborn remains, no fetal remains at all um, will be identified using our services. However, when it comes to infanticide, homicide of an infant, we do believe that that's a crime. I mean, it, it is a crime. We believe that the infant deserves justice. And even though it is it is hard to do that work because we've all had our, our struggles as women in society, and it's we know that it's not easy to, to be alone as a mom. But at the same time, we feel for those infants that had a full life ahead of them. And so um, that's it, it. It is a sticky and controversial situation, but it's really important to us that infants, that, that people are held accountable for, for that crime. And a lot of the time, too, with the infant death, it isn't just they leave a baby somewhere like there are horrible things done to infants that in their bodies are found like one or two day old infants are beaten. So so like in those cases, I don't find anything wrong at all with helping to prosecute those people because that baby could have just been left anywhere, a supermarket, a church. Like it might've been before the safe haven laws were in place, but there was something that they could have put that baby somewhere. There was no need to harm the infant as well. So that's, I was kind of hesitant about the infant cases, but when we narrowed our focus and we made sure that we specify that we will only be working the homicide cases, then it, it felt much better. We talked a bit about the trainings and sort of partnerships, with law enforcement. And I imagine this is something that both for both of you sort of started when you're working on DNA Doe project, but going into coast to coast, how do you sort of build up that trust with law enforcement partners and kind of like, put yourself out there and say, you know, we are people who, you know, can help you do this essentially. And if you could talk us through some of those sort of relationships, I guess. Sure. So I'll point out first that we had some existing relationships with law enforcement due to our work with uh, DOE cases. So that was very helpful. People already trusted us because they already knew us from our work on previous cases that they had, that they were working on. However, it's hard to to get into the field of law enforcement is is so insular. A lot of the people in law enforcement only talk to other law enforcement agents. So it's, it's kind of hard to even get in there. And I'm not really sure if this is just my perception as a woman, but I do feel like it, it might be a little bit harder as a woman to sort of break into that field as well. Um, And I feel sometimes that if I were a male, that I would be more trusted upfront than, um, than I am as a female. And I'm, I'm really not sure. I don't have any evidence to back that up because this field is really small. Um, but we, we try to be very honest and open and transparent. We promise communication to our agencies. So we hope that those things will, will bring us business because that's, the one, that's one thing that's very important to any law enforcement agent is receiving updates on their case. Um, and so we never want to leave them hanging on that. And so I, I hope that that's one thing that we're offering that maybe some others are not. So it's going to be important for us to keep a manageable caseload as we go forward, because we want to always be able to provide that communication that's needed. Also, um, I know that our work with the DNA Doe Project does help because it shows that we have the experience. There are 
people out there that don't have the experience that say they do. I mean, I know there are some good people who are breaking into the field who don't have as much experience, but definitely having proof of experience is very helpful because we can point to situations where we have helped solve cases. So that kind of helps give us additional credibility. The Google ability of the CCG members. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. And and what one element that I think Tracy and I talked about on the phone that I was very interested in is kind of, you know, you, you obviously maintain very professional standards and have a great track record with your previous work volunteering and that you're leveraging that. But I, you know, the idea that people might be coming into the field and it kind of is growing and how do, how does the field sort of maintain those standards and ensure that people who maybe like don't really know what they're doing kind of come in and, you know, mess things up for everybody. Um, what sort of standards are you guys sort of like, would like to see adopted or like, you know, what are your thoughts on that, I guess? So uh, the field's about five years old, which is about, you know, toddlers getting, we're getting into school age here and people are starting to see the need for standards. Um, If you look at different publications that have been introduced this year, I won't bore your listeners with them, but there's a general theme of a call for greater standards. People are very concerned about bad actors coming into the field and sort of delegitimizing it by making mistakes or not following the rules. So I would like to see adherence to Department of Justice guidelines and the other guidelines that have been set forth as being a basic standard for practicing IgG. I know that certification is being developed. There are also education programs that are popping up that will hopefully teach to those same principles. So I'm looking forward to seeing this field become legitimized and uh, more professionalized than it is right now. The thing that I keep on saying, and I I hear it all the time in our field, is that we're operating like the wild, wild west right now, and we're ready to to grow up a little bit. Uh, I think another thing that's important is that it's pointed out more consistently that investigative genetic genealogists are only allowed to use two databases, GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. All other databases have it currently in their terms of service that law enforcement is not allowed to upload human remains or any kind of violent crime cases. It's stated right in their terms of service. So I feel like there's a lot of people that kind of gloss over that or don't point it out enough. And they confuse people by believing that they can just upload to Ancestry or 23andMe and they can solve all these cases. But that's not how it works. We are literally working with two databases that equate to about maybe, I think it's 3 million testers in total. And that's for doe cases, for uh, violent crimes, it's less because you have to only use the opted in matches. So I think that's one important standard that I think more genealogists should make sure that they point out is that those are the two databases and those are the two that people should upload if they want help. <laughs> yes. Follow the rules. <laughs> we, I, I definitely understand that. I, we're, we're definitely in, you know, the true crime journalism space, which, when you look back in history, has always been kind of a bit of a wild west. I would say, if you look back in like the twenties, and reporters are going into crime scenes, and you're like, oh my goodness. But, um, so, I, but I definitely commend you for kind of trying to push the field. Definitely need the standards. I'm, I'm a journalist. He's a lawyer. We're not science people at all. So I apologize if this is a really dumb question, but can you basically like walk us through sort of the process, like the scientific process and the kind of uh, analysis that you do in terms of being able to 
do identifications and kind of, you know, basically match the DNA to the person essentially? Much like anybody that takes a direct-to-consumer test, um, I'm going to use Ancestry and 23andMe as an example, even though we don't use those. Um, but if you were to take an Ancestry DNA test and send it into Ancestry DNA, they're going to show you two basic things. One is your admixture or ethnicity estimate. And that's going to say something like 20% Scottish, 40% Irish, 10% German, something like that. We get that same sort of report, although it looks a little bit different from GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA for a doe or a suspect. So that gives us a little bit of information right away. Like generally, where does this person come from? Then the other thing that we get, which is a more important part, is the list of DNA matches. The list of DNA matches will be in order, usually from closest relative to the most distant. And they can range anywhere from like, I've had, I have a case right now that has like 79 matches. Um, which is not a lot. And then I have some that have like 4,000, 5,000, you know, thousands of them. And those DNA matches are the really important part because as genetic genealogists, we build out the matches family trees and we look for connections between them. And then we build back forward in time from those connections to find our doe or our suspect. I think Karen did a pretty good job explaining yeah. it. <laughs> Tracy, do you want to fill in like mito and Y DNA? Because sometimes we use um, those too. Yeah, I don't use it as much as Karen does. But Y DNA is the male line going straight to father to son. Sometimes we get the Y DNA tests and that will help us figure out a surname potentially. Also with the X DNA, we've had cases. Actually, I've had a recent case where actually we had a recent case as well coast to coast where the X DNA, it follows a certain pattern in men. It's only through their mother's lines. So if you have a male suspect or male doe and a male match, if you have an X match, then you know to start tracing the mother's line. And there's a very specific pattern that it follows back. So you only have to trace certain lines to see where that connection lies. It's very useful when you're trying to narrow down a family line, especially in cases of endogamy, where you have just so much intermarriage or even pedigree collapse sometimes or where things look a little messy, it really kind of helps you suss everything out so you can follow that line and help narrow down. Mito is the haplogroups. So mitochondrial DNA is passed along the maternal line only. So you will have the same mitochondrial DNA haplogroup as your mother's 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 mother. <laughs> so it goes way, way far back, ancient migrations. So different people have different haplogroups, but two people can have the same haplogroup and it's just a coincidence. We have a common ancestor thousands of years back. So for example, Tracy and I might both have a haplogroup H and that doesn't necessarily mean that we share an ancestor on our maternal line in recent times. It could just be that we you know, H is a very common haplogroup where we live as, you know, European Americans. So light skin. (laughs) yeah, we look like sisters, you know, (laughs) Um, and, but if I have a different haplogroup than Tracy, if I'm H and she's, you know, uh, B, then you know that we do not share a common ancestor on the maternal line. So that's why we say that it can be used to rule a downline out, but not in. So just because you have the same one, doesn't mean that they're related, but if they have a different one, you can definitely know that they don't share the same maternal ancestor. And sometimes people also confuse mito with X DNA 
but mito is just the mother's 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 line whereas xdna can get passed down from either side of the family depending on your gender that is fascinating and i'm like i i know looking in my family's genealogy i know i can think of one instance where you had two, two brothers from one family married two sisters from the other and i've always thought oh, that would really that would really mess things up <laughs> I, I have that in my family like my great grandfather and his wife his brother married her sister <laughs> So I have a double cousin relationship in a couple of my matches. Yeah. The double cousin. You're like, whoa, who would, I, yeah. I, I think I was watching a show once where that came into play in terms of investigating people. And they were like, is it this side of the family or that? Yeah. Um, it, it, it caused a little problems. And I just found out, I also have a couple matches that match me like five times over. So that's a little confusing as well. <laughs> I didn't know it existed until I got like a 235 centimorgan match, which is like a second to third cousin range. And nothing fit. So, and I started tracing his tree back. I'm like, oh, that's that mystery line I don't know about. And you match me potentially five ways. So that's going to be fun. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. Untangling the spaghetti. <laughs> I'm a little curious. What uh, initially got you guys interested in this sort of work? Uh, so my mother is adopted. I would say at least 70% of the people that I know that are in this type of work either are adopted or have a close family member that's adopted because that's really, it's just the first rabbit hole that a person goes down. And so I started out as a teenager by researching my mother's birth parents. And then when um, DNA became available to do the same, I, I was sort of like an early adopter of that and started researching my mother's adoption, and then found out that she had a close relative who was also adopted, who showed up as a DNA match to her. So I ended up helping him. He was the second adoptee that I ever assisted. And then from there, it kind of spiraled and I got really into the adoption searches and then was in the right place at the right time when it started being applied to John and Jane Doe cases. I think your true crime fans might enjoy this because what how I became involved with DNA Doe Project is I was on a subreddit reading about a specific case and the founders of DNA Doe Project actually posted on that subreddit looking for assistance. And so I answered the call and I'm so glad I did because it's completely changed my life. I actually didn't get involved through adoption. <laughs> my story goes back really, really far. So I'll do the quick version of that and then how I got into it more recently. My dad was a detective in our town. And when I was around 11, there was a murder that happened and I got very interested in what happened. So I kind of started following it and asking my dad all these questions. And I got really into like true crime stuff at that point. I wanted to become a profiler for the FBI, but obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> Life got in the way and I wound up taking a different turn and working in an office environment instead. I'd always been interested in genealogy, but never like truly got into it until probably the summer. Like I'd done a little bit of work, but it wasn't like I was hardcore into it until the summer of like 2013. I started doing some research and I had been asking my dad some questions and I found out that he never talked about his dad much. And I found out that he had passed when my dad was young. He was only about four years old. And so I didn't really know much about my paternal grandfather at all. So I wanted to know where my boils came from. 
So basically, you know, everybody wants to know if their boils are from Donegal, which mine are. But I kind of got into learning more about my grandfather and tracing his genealogy and learning about his family. And I discovered this entire family that I didn't know. And I started reaching out to second cousins and I met these other cousins that I didn't know about. And they were telling me about my grandfather. And from there, I just got bitten by the DNA bug and just kept going and going and going. And in April of 2018, I had heard about the Buckskin Girl case being solved by this group called the DNA Doe Project. It was actually two weeks prior to the Golden State Killer being announced. And I had sent an email in right away because I had, I had actually, after I started doing stuff with my grandfather, I did help some adoptees work on their cases. And I was like, I can do this. I'm like, this is, this is good stuff. I'm like, maybe I could help, you know, help identify Jane and John Doe's too. So I sent the email in in April. And then after contacting them a couple more times, I wound up getting an email back in October and the rest is history. That is amazing. I love both of your origin stories in this. One thing I'm curious about, you know, we always hear people, you know, when we're covering a case, like, oh, you know, if it's unsolved, like hopefully DNA will kind of advance in terms of what the capabilities are and, and whatnot. And in terms of genetic genealogy, are there any advancements or, you know, possibilities for advancement that you guys are sort of like looking at or kind of keeping an eye on as you as you continue coast to coast and your work with, you know, the DNA Doe Project? Well, one thing that I want to see in my lifetime, so I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to get any farther with advancing the science of DNA extraction. I have one concern and one hope. So my concern is the use of touch DNA for suspect cases, because touch DNA is sort of a controversial subject. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know that much about it, but anybody can leave touch DNA anywhere. So it's not as good to use in a suspect case as let's say like semen that's left behind at a crime scene. So that's my concern for the future and science. And then my hope for the future of IgG is that the playing field will be leveled from a diversity, equity, inclusion standpoint. So for Doe cases, I'll just give a recent example that I saw from, uh, from DNA Doe project. There were three cases all referred at the same time from the same county, all had the same type of DNA available. They all had, um, you know, good, fresh DNA. All of the cases came to DDP at the same time, went through the lab process. Two of them got solved right away. And the other one is left behind. And the the only difference is their race. So the two Caucasian cases were solved. Um, There's a Hispanic case that is likely not solvable given her current matches. Um, similarly, um, from what I've seen in the media, I don't have statistics on this, but there was an article, uh, by the New York times, I believe, or no, sorry, the Atlantic in, um, 2019 about this, that most IgG cases are being used to solve violent crimes where the victim was Caucasian. So, um, there, there's some, some things that, we have the power to change. And one of them is representation of matches in the DNA databases that we use. By increasing the amount of people from other, from minority populations in those databases, we'll have a better chance of solving um, DOE cases that are minority DOEs. So Hispanic um, and Latin American people are overly represented in uh, as, as far as John and Jane Doe's. And it would be great if we could solve more of their cases. On the flip side of that, 
Um, I can see why people of, from minority populations would be concerned about putting their DNA in a database um, because we kind of have this problem of Caucasian victims getting the most attention in terms of true crime coverage and um, solving their cases using this new technology. Um, so I guess I, I, my goal and my hope for the future is that we'll just see a more level playing field that's fair and equitable for all people. And I know that me, Karen and Harmony have also discussed that we would like to do some kind of a focus on underrepresented women, um, you know, African-American, Hispanic, um, sex workers, people that are usually overlooked by detectives who want to solve crimes. So that's something that we had also talked about. Um, not only to that aspect, more of the research aspect. I know that people are coming out with new tools that make our jobs easier every day. Um, so I would love to, for people, more people to keep working on these tools that help us not to, when you auto generate things, there's always issues that come up with that. But if you know what you're working with, sometimes those auto generated things also help you a lot because they kind of save a little bit of time. They kind of give you an area of focus, um, like things like what are the odds is a tool that we use. And you can plug in information. It will kind of give you the odds of where your doe or where your suspect might fit in the tree based on matches. It, pe- regular genealogists use it as well. But it's just one tool that we can use to kind of help narrow our focus to see where in a tree that we should kind of look at to see where our suspect may be. So I'm just hoping that smart people will come up with more of these type of tools that help us just have a more narrow focus on our research. You guys sort of just started coast to coast, I understand. And and so how, how's the work been going so far? Like how many, if you can share, like how many cases are you taking on at once? And sort of how are you making this sort of startup work as you're also, you're also incredibly busy because you're doing like five things at once, but um, talk us a bit through that sort of a, that process, I guess, at this point. So initially we had some case referrals come to us right away. As soon as we announced our opening, there are some sort of barriers in place. For one thing, our launch was mainly announced in New York, and there are some very strict rules about genetic genealogy in New York, uh, investigative genetic genealogy in New York. In spite of that, we did get some case referrals from other states in the Midwest and the West Coast, and we worked on those right away. I can't really share a lot of details right now, but we're waiting on some agencies for some things, and we're very hopeful that more work is coming our way. Yeah, we do. We do have a bunch of cases in the pipeline, and I know we have more that are coming. We're kind of in talks with some people. I think the thing is, it's just difficult to get cases just because of what you had mentioned earlier about trying to break into the law enforcement community, because there are so many options out there. And sometimes it's not the best option, but they don't know that. So, you know, you have to try to educate law enforcement and people, the coroners, as to the best processes for their samples sometimes. And you just need to be able to work with them. It's a lot of hard work and you get a lot of non-responses, but you keep plugging away. And I said, the people we've worked with have referred us to other people. So it's, I think going forward, it's going to be more of that. If you wind up getting into a department if you do a good job, they'll see that your work will show how good you are. And then they will refer you to people that they know. And then you'll just keep snowballing from there. 
Let's pause here for a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. At The Murder Sheet, we're all about true crime podcasts, but we also adore audiobooks that immerse us in mysteries of both the fictional and nonfictional varieties. So you can imagine that we love Audible. With an Audible subscription, you can enter in an incredible library of audiobooks. We are talking about thousands of titles. Audible also has thousands of podcasts from all sorts of genres, including yours truly's, not to mention all sorts of other audio experiences. Audible members can download or stream included titles at any time, and the Audible app lets you listen on the go. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm doing chores around the house. One novel I'm looking forward to listening to is A Wicked Snow by Greg Olson. It's all about a young crime scene investigator haunted by her mother's mysterious murder. We talked to Greg on the show a while back, and I cannot wait to check that out. I love spine-tingling thrillers and mysteries, and I can tell that this one is going to be spooky in the best possible way. Audible brings such atmosphere to the listening experience. Audio is such a wonderful way to lose yourself in a story. Now is a wonderful time to become an Audible member. Murder Sheet listeners are getting a special deal. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500. That's audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. The other thing that I didn't anticipate when we started working on suspect cases is that it takes a little bit longer when we provided information to our law enforcement partners. So, for example, in a Doe case, usually if we give the name of a candidate for a Doe to our law enforcement partners, then within, you know, we're going to know pretty soon because they're going to call the family and they're going to say, hey, when was this person last seen? They're going to try to obtain a sample from them. And then, you know, that process moves kind of quickly. In in investigative cases that are for suspects, it's a little bit different because now, as I mentioned earlier, when we provide this investigative lead, it's on law enforcement to collect a surreptitious DNA sample to confirm that lead. And I think I definitely underestimated how long that can take and how difficult it is for law enforcement not everybody smokes cigarettes, not everybody throws water bottles away. So I, it's sometimes that t- takes a really long time. And so it's hard for us as impatient people. 
I can understand that you, you know, you feel like you have the answer and like, when, when's it going to happen? Um, you mentioned, you know, like kind of like maybe some firms that aren't the best or, you know, th- there can be actors within the space that are, that are not the best. I know, you know, we see that in the journalism side of things in true crime, but, you know, in terms of genetic genealogy, uh, you know, definitely concerning for everyone in the field. If, if someone could be doing something wrong, that then reflects poorly on the entire practice. And so, I guess, are there any like red flags that uh, you sort of inform law enforcement or other actors about, you know, when they're looking around about like, this might be a bad sign. I know you mentioned earlier, like not following the basic rules that the Justice Department set out and, you know, going on sites where you shouldn't be going and you're not allowed to go. But are there other things that are a red flag of concern for you when you're looking at other actors? Lack of transparency, I would say, is the biggest one. If you are asking a question and not getting an answer, then that is a concern. And I will also send links to the Department of Justice guidelines. And there's another group called SWGDAM, S-W-G-D-A-M, that has also come up with guidelines that are important to follow. So I'll personally send those to a law enforcement partner and be like, hey, this is why I'm saying this. If you heard different from somebody else, they're not following these rules. I would say the same thing. I think transparency and ethics are the two biggest concerns. If people are just telling you what you want to hear sometimes, that doesn't mean that they're telling you the truth. As Karen said, not answering questions, doing shady work, not giving you updates when you ask about things. You know, they're just random little flags that basically transparency is a huge thing. And a lot of the really good genealogists are transparent. You ask them a question, they can give you a transparent answer. But there are some that won't, and that's what you have to look out for. Another investigative genetic genealogist in our field that we're friends with recently used another turn of phrase using gut feeling. And, you know, she said, like, if if it's in your gut that you're being led astray, maybe follow that gut instinct and and think, like, is there is there something not totally transparent going on here. So that feeling should come into play as well, I think. Do you guys have any memories of working at DNA Doe Project or Coast to Coast now, sort of like career highlights or something where you were able to figure something out? And I know you probably can't go into details if it's about something ongoing with Coast to Coast, so no worries. Feel free to be very general. Just kind of anything that sort of like is kind of like, yes, this is why I'm doing this work. I would say two highlights that I can remember from coast to coast when we put out our press release and it was picked up by several organizations and printed and shared widely um, through our, our community. Uh, That was a really exciting moment for us. That was our, you know, our, our launch press release. So that was really exciting. And then also turning in our first final report to law enforcement. That's basically where we close our part of the case. That was a really important milestone for us as well in that frame our first time when I saw that we were in forensic mag that was a forensic magazine that was like a huge deal because we saw the thing we're like oh my god this is so exciting and the opposite of what Karen said I think the most exciting thing for me for coast to coast was when we actually got our first case through the lab and had a kit and had matches and we were like okay this is real. We're actually, we actually have a case that we're working on our own now. It's like, it's a different feeling when you're working with an organization that you, that you're working under and, you know, you're following the rules and the guidelines that they have, but like when it's your baby, like it's it's your case. And it's like, it's basically, it's kind of your baby. That's kind of your, your first baby is coming out of the oven (laughs) and you're just like, okay, this is it. 
game time, guys. You know, we need to, you know, work our butts off to get this case solved so that we can, you know, get it done. So getting that first case and seeing those first matches were like, this is this is this is an actual person that we're researching. It, it just it's even though you've been doing it for the DNA Doe project with does, it's just different when you're doing it outside of that. So it's another thing in general is just you know one of the recent cases I helped solve with the DNA Doe project. I was a team leader for one of the biggest things was seeing his family talk about how grateful they were that he was identified, and we had known that they never stopped looking for him because we had just seen posts and stuff by them, but hearing them actually say it and just knowing that their search is, was finally over and that <clears throat> they finally had answers. That was one of those moments where it was like, yeah, this is why we do what we do because we want to give these family the answers. They're never going to get the closure because there really is technically no such thing as closure, but at least they're not always wondering what happened to their loved one. I mean, it's not the way you ever want anything to end, but at least they know. So that's that's one of the best feelings. Just It's bittersweet. It's like being able to make sure that they know, but it might not be the answer that they wanted. I think having that answer, you know, we've talked with a lot of families who who, who had relatives who were victims of unsolved crimes and, and the not knowing, regardless of what what else, I think can be very, very uniquely painful. It's double for like a missing person that you're trying to find and, and can't locate. I I wanted to throw it back to both of you, uh, Karen and Tracy, and and just is there anything that we didn't ask about? Oh, here's one, and then I'm gonna do my. Is there anything we didn't ask about? Reporter question that I always end with. The one that I just thought of. Um, is there any way uh, true crime media or just the media in general maybe doesn't seem to understand about genetic genealogy? That's sort of like misconceptions or myths that are out there, or or do they do a pretty good job with it? And you think it's it's kind of getting out there in a way that, you know, it, it is well represented, I guess. I would say there are two sides and and it's kind of, it's so funny because I, I mentioned earlier that I read Reddit sometimes and sometimes I'll see posts that are so supportive, true crime people that are so supportive of IgG and its use in unidentified remains cases and suspect cases. And then sometimes on the same forum, same night, different thread, I will see one that there are overwhelmingly negative comments about how invasive it is to people's privacy. So I would say that the myth I would like to bust today is that it is not invasive to people's privacy. The thing is that people can opt in or out of law enforcement matching on both family tree DNA and GEDmatch. So as long as IgG practitioners are doing their due diligence and only using the databases that we're supposed to have access to, the only DNA matches that are being used are those who have opted in to this type of searching. And you know what? It is really helpful if people do want to help us out opt in on those websites, Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. If you've done a direct-to-consumer DNA test somewhere else, you can move your DNA over. You can copy it over to those websites. And it really helps us. All we're looking at is how much DNA you share with the dough. We're not looking at people's medical information. We're not looking at anything besides who they are. And we're, look we're looking for their family tree and how much they match the doe or suspect. And it's really helpful if people can help us out with that. I like to think of matches as a stepping stone. 
you're basically just looking at them to find the next, to find the next, to eventually land on the match that you need to find or the the name of the person that you need to find. For my misconceptions, I mean, I, I've been involved with the true crime community for a long time and I love them. But I think one of the biggest things I've been seeing now is that every single person believes that if there's DNA, that the case can be solved right away. But the problem is if there's degraded or contaminated DNA or that evidence evidence wasn't stored properly, there is a chance that you won't be able to get a usable profile. And that if you have a small amount of DNA and you choose the wrong way to extract it, you could destroy what's left of that case. So while we all want to solve every single crime and hope that there's DNA and everything and it all is perfect and we have great profiles, like we don't always get great profiles. Sometimes we get profiles that only have 50% coverage. So we're working with not all the matches we could have. We're going to get a profile that fails because you just don't have enough enough of good DNA or enough of DNA that's still good to use to make it. So I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions I see is that everybody automatically just assumes that if there's DNA, it's going to be solved. And I think also people just assume that every case has DNA where sometimes they just don't. And you have to just try to do crowdsourcing or other ways to get that case solved that DNA won't be able to do. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like a catch-all. I think it's seen as a catch-all because there's been so many great success stories with it. And, you know, I think people don't realize that a lot of cases remain largely circumstantial, you know, and, and just old fashioned police work and DNA is a tremendous resource, obviously, in many cases. But as you said, sometimes people get lucky and they do something without leaving that much of a trace of themselves. Is there anything we didn't ask either of you about that you wanted to mention or or wanted to shout out or, you know, do, feel free to plug coast to coast. How can people get in touch with you? What, what sort of, what's the process? So two questions. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> um, okay. So one thing that I, want to say just about investigative genetic genealogy in general and and really like any any career anything that you do as a team is infinitely better than doing it on your own so uh, as a team of three at coast to coast we are able to see each other's mistakes so if people are trying to break into this field as we've mentioned follow the guidelines get educated practice a lot before you try to go out on your own. And then even if you are going out on your own to practice it, better to be on a team because it's just better to have multiple perspectives on, on a certain issue. I already mentioned how people can help. If you're interested in solving cases, there are a number of nonprofits that help fund investigative genetic genealogy. One, of course, DNA Doe Project that we both work for is a nonprofit. The best thing that anybody can do though is to upload to GenMatch and Family Tree DNA those really help us to solve cases. And to piggyback off what Karen said, having a team that works together, also we help complement each other. So where one person might fall a little short with something or somebody's better at something else, you can all complement each other and teach each other as well. So even the most experienced person can still learn from other people. And every case is different. Every place you're researching is going to be different for the most part. A case you might get, say, in like Tennessee might have family members in Nebraska. Like you don't know where you're going to wind up with their family trees. So you're always learning. You're always researching. And you said you're learning from each other. And when you get frustrated, it's nice to be able to have a sounding board where you can just frustratingly call the person or text the person and be like, 
I can't get this. Who is this? Why can't we figure this out? Like, and then you take a step away, you go back or somebody else takes a look at it and then you figure out what the error was. So working in a team definitely beats working alone when possible. And then uh, you were saying, where can people find us? We can be found online. Our website is coasttocoastgg.com. So that's coast, like the word coast, to T-O, coastgg.com. It has all of our contact information there. You can see media links where we've been mentioned. We don't have any cases listed on there because as we've mentioned, our cases are now um, suspects in violent crimes and infant remains. So we can't list those until after they're solved and put to bed. And we're also on social media, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Coast to Coast GG. So it's the same. Thanks to Tracy and Karen for talking with us and sharing their insights. We wish them all the best in their investigations. We'll link to their website in our show notes, as well as the Westchester Magazine article. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the murder sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.